Well, I'm going to jump right in. I have about, uh, I got a, they said I have about an hour. And so I'm fired up to really use that whole time. Just kidding. Uh, I know you're like, the mind can conceive what the seat can endure. And so I do want to introduce you to my family. Every time I have any opportunity to speak or teach or anything, I text. It used to be the six of us. Now it's the seven. And here's my family right there. I'm in the middle, the white guy. And then next to me is my wife, Joanne. She is Samoan. So I'm Norwegian. My wife's Samoan. <laughs> and so you see we have two sons. Something was pillaged and burned every day at our house when they were growing up. So if you're taking notes, pillage before you burn. Okay. So on her, uh, I guess on the left there is our oldest son, Justice, and his wife, Brittany. And they have our first grandbaby, our granddaughter, Sophia. And we just love it. I told my mom and dad, we are not near as old as you were when you had grandkids. But the fact is we are. And I wouldn't change any of it. Uh, and then next to my wife there is our youngest son and his wife, Josiah, and our other daughter in love, Britain, um, not Brittany, but Maria. And we are so blessed um, that they love Jesus. They're part of the mission of God. And um, they, they are praying for you. I got a text back from three of them. We're in three time zones. So that's a good ratio. But they're praying a, a blessing over this time together. So I, I just, a little bit about me. Um, so I'm a twin. I have two older sisters. One is six minutes older. And one is um, four years older. And they both want me to honor my elders. And so I'm working on that. Um, but my mom, so my, my dad was a senior uh, at Western Washington University. Megan and I were born. Brenda was already um, born. And then we moved to Vancouver, Washington. And my dad was traveling for work, all in, good, good man, didn't know Jesus. My mom didn't know Jesus. So my mom joined a twins club. I don't even know if those exist anymore, but my mom needed friends. You know, when you're a mom and you have small kids, you need to like have adult conversation occasionally and have someone you can celebrate with slash appropriately complain. And someone's like, I got you, I get you, right? So in that, in that twins club, she met a woman by the name of Betty Ritchie. Betty Ritchie and her husband changed our lives. Her husband and her were pastors at United Methodist Church in Salmon Creek, Washington. But they were about to plant a church. I didn't even know church planting existed. In fact, we launched at Columbia High School, and I was a, a seven seven-year-old at that point. I had no idea we were at a church plant. I just knew that I got to ride that chair cart in the um, cafe gymatorium and try not to fall off it. It was like this dangerous surfboard, right? And I remember the first time we met, we had to take more chairs off the chair cart. I, I, man, I tear up every time I tell this part. I gave my life to Christ at a church plant at Columbia High School in Vancouver, Washington, underneath the football stadium, because that's where our classroom was. And my Sunday school teacher, Rich Bell, was a one-eyed national wrestling champion. And when you're seven, and your Sunday school teacher has one eye, <laughs> you lean in. And then you find out he's a national wrestling champion. Whew. Incredible. He also led my dad to the Lord. My dad was a logger. We grew up in the woods. He had a degree, but he ended up working in, in, in uh, logging. And he was a man's man. It's incredible how God uses you. 
And I'm here to remind you that today. I don't know if you've ever or recently been discouraged. <laughs> I have. And I love what I'm doing. So I want to talk to you today about pioneers and settlers. Not pioneers or settlers, but pioneers and settlers. Because all of us in this room are one or both of those things. So what is a pioneer? Pioneer is someone that, that has a, a pioneering spirit to go into places that no one else has gone before, or at least they haven't gone before. They go to uncharted territory. They go to new places. They break new ground. They go to the edges of people groups and civilizations and communities. And the motive behind our multiplication and our pioneering really matters. Why should we add another gathering or launch another campus or, or partner with someone who is? Let me just land in the scriptures because that's our anchor. Jesus says this, come follow me, Mark 4, come follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. We, we hear him say the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then he says this, I'm sending you out. God is a go God most of the time. He's a no God sometimes and a wait God, but most of the time he's a go God. He's like, I want you to go and I want you to do this. Therefore, go and make disciples of who? All nations. Don't you love Jerusalem? But I also thank God for the ends of the earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all people. What is the invitation? Teaching them to obey everything he's commanded. And then we have this promise and I'm gonna talk more about it throughout this week. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Couple more verses though. Jesus says this audacious thing in John 14. He says, you will do, <laughs> I'm glad you're seated, greater things than me. Really? Come on. Think about that. You know why he said that? Because of the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. Because he's paved a way for us. Because we don't go in our own strength. We go in his strength. It's not by might, right? Nor by power, but what? By the spirit says the Lord. How about we go to, to Acts? And I love this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be, it's not on the screen, but I'm quoting it. You will be my, what? Witnesses. What does it mean? It means to bring the gospel and bring, it, it means to operate as a sent one. And that's who we are in this room. Now, I, I, I want to ask how many of you know what this is? Yeah. Thank you. It's a camera. But it's also a Polaroid camera because in your pocket, you have a digital camera, most of you. Some of you are rocking the flip phone. I like it. Keep running with that, okay? Um, but the thing about a Polaroid, I remember when these came out, okay? This was invented during World War II. In fact, the first time it came out, 1948, it was in a Chicago department store and it sold out in two hours. Edmund H. Land was the inventor of it. And the two things that set this apart from the photography at that point in, in, in history was that it was instant. That's why it's called an instant camera. And every picture was original. There's no replication of it. So I'm going to get a picture of you guys. Man, you look good. Okay, now we, want, we know what's going to happen here. Wait for it patiently. It, it, okay, let's try again. You know how like you, you prep for an illustration and then it doesn't work? We'll just try one more time. Dear baby Jesus, please. Okay. 
This is brand new film. I know this because I brought my camera with me another time and I dropped it and it broke. And, and so just, I want you to imagine, can you just imagine with me um, <laughs> that there was film that came out of it? It's supposed to do that. It was a really powerful illustration. And so that's, um, wait, I'm just going to put in my notes. Don't be stupid. Okay. Uh, but you've all seen a Polaroid picture, right? It slides out. And then what do we do? Because we're so impatient. What We try to hurry the what? The development process. So there's a couple key things we do. You, some of you are already a Michael Jackson moment, okay? You, 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 you shake it, right? And you think you're going to hurry up the development process, but there's science happening underneath that film, and you can't speed it up, but you can hinder it. And sometimes we're like, I want to, this not happening fast. Oh, wow. Pastors, you ever been there? It's not happening fast enough. Now here, I want you to hear three numbers. Now, by the way, other people would put it under their armpit, thinking the heat would warm it up. Don't, don't be judging. Some of you did this. And then the other thing, this is true of a video game cartridge. You'd blow on it. That works. It doesn't work. Um, thank you for that. Uh, maybe it does. Maybe, but... Here's what's interesting. There's three numbers I want you to hear, and this applies to what you're doing right now as a pioneer and or a settler. The numbers are 30, 24, and 1. It takes up to 30 minutes for that picture to come to a very clear or close to the fullness of the image it's going to be. So 30 minutes. We're in a hurry. Like, is that a giraffe? Oh, no, it's, you know, whatever it is. 30, it can take up to 24 hours for some of the finer details to come to the surface. But according to Polaroid, it can take up to one month for all of the pixelation and the colors to gel the way that they're supposed to. Here's the point of it. It doesn't develop instantly, even though it kind of does. And I'm telling you right now, your mission and your vision and your multiplication is not done developing at your church. And some of you, I get this, you're saying we're not a multiplying church. But you are because you started that way. Listen, how many of you, show of hands, how many of you, um, someone started your church? Just raise your hand. You didn't start it, but someone else started it. You're a part of a church plant. Your church might be 90, it could be 110, maybe not, but you know, in that 100 range. It could be seven, or it could be two weeks. And multiplication and church planting is part of all of the DNA of every church. And by the way, this isn't new to, not, to right now. This is part of this fulfillment of therefore go and make disciples. There are some benefits to pioneering, and I wrote a couple of them down. Number one, you learn to trust God in ways you can't otherwise. Now, trust me, I'm going to talk about pioneers, and I'm going to talk about the beautiful benefits of being a settler. But there's some things that happen when you pioneer. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 has never felt more real. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in what? All of your ways, acknowledge him. And he'll direct your path or make your path straight. How about this? Pioneering breaks the curse of comfort off of our lives. We have a culture that is, that is enamored with comfort. And if there's anything we can do to make stuff easier and more comfortable, we'll typically slip into that. But I don't see that anywhere in scripture where Jesus is like, listen, what I really want is just, just get comfortable. I don't see that. What I see is he wants us to be dangerous with the gospel. 
He wants us to do hard things to bring the gospel into places that are resistant to it. And that's not just around the world. Sometimes that is across the street. Missiologist Alan Hirsch calls this pioneer experience communitas. And communitas in its simplest definition is this. It's a journey of a group of people that find each other only in a common pursuit of a vision and mission that lies beyond itself, that is bigger than itself, and its energies are primarily focused outward. We experienced that when Joanne and I, after 12 years serving at the network office in the Northwest, uh, we moved to a city an hour from our house. After 20 years in the same city, 16 in the same church, 12 at the same job, we pulled up our roots and drove an hour away. And we knew nobody. It's not totally true. I knew one pastor of a mega church. <laughs> I invited him to be on the team. I said, there's a teaching role for you. It's a volunteer. And he, he said, no, thank you. Uh, but we know nobody, okay? So we relocated. And I, I remember saying, God, who's even gonna come with us? Who would wanna quit their job to come work no time or part-time or three-quarter time? All of the, the expressions, all of us had jobs outside of the church. In fact, um, one guy worked selling tires. Another guy sold um, uh, uh, cupboards, not cupboards. Um, what's the stuff in your... Um, um, cabinets is the word I was trying to find. And so I'm going to, that and the illustration. Um, another, we had multiple baristas who were on the team. And our kids pastor, Chris, Chris Hinkle, who's now a missionary, worked at a mortuary. And we had to tell him, you cannot tell people that two hours before we got to the theater at 5.30 to set up for the day, you were carrying a dead body out of a house. You can't tell people that. But here's what you do when you say yes to God. You do whatever it takes. My wife drove an hour. This isn't complaining. This is just our story. An hour both ways the first year we were there so we could have insurance. Would we do it again? Of course. In a pioneering spirit and a pioneering effort, you experience some things you don't in the midst of comfort. God calls people to pioneer. But simultaneously, he calls some people to be settlers. Because it's not or, it's and. What is, a, what is a, a, the mentality of a settler? By the way, the word settle is in the word settler, and it doesn't mean the same thing. To be a settler is not a bad thing at all. In fact, there's power in putting down roots and, and operating with the clarity that God called me this community that it would be a launch pad for other people. But what are some characteristics of a settlement? Or why would someone choose to be a settler? Comfort, security, and safety. And these aren't bad desires. Uh, maybe you're tired. Man, I know seasons where I'm just like, man, I want to take a knee. You ever, don't have to show, show a hand, but you ever been in a season where you're like, I just need a break. Maybe you have fear of change or the unknown. Maybe you remember the pain of pioneering and you're like, I don't know if I have enough in the tank to do this again. Maybe you're a parent and you think our kids can't handle pioneering and if we can just find somewhere to settle in. But here's what I want to tell you. Your kids can grow in any setting. In fact, what happens is when you step out in faith, when you say yes to God, whether as a pioneer or a settler, God teaches your kids to develop faith. 
The, I would say the worst time to move your kids uh, would be the, before their freshman and their 11th grade year. And I only say that because that's what we did. <laughs> and the first year we were there, Derek, you know Josiah, our youngest son, uh, he doesn't like change. Like he was mad when Larry King retired, okay? And he doesn't even know Larry King, okay? So he's like, doesn't like change. And I remember the first year he would be in our living room and he would say this, I'm in the living room, Joanne's in the living room. He'd say, mom, do I have to go to that thing that dad's doing? I'm like, I'm over here, I can hear you. And he was wrestling, he, was, he hated change. In fact, he used that H word. He, he, he said, I hate this. And he was on this journey of his faith being solidified and anchored and tested. It was really painful. But fast forward one year, he brought nine friends to our winter retreat. Why? Because God was doing something in him. He was developing some new muscles. He was developing in him some resolve and some, I can do hard things, a mentality. It takes courage to be a settler. It takes courage to put down roots and love people for a long time. It takes courage to be someone who says, I have other opportunities and seemingly greener pastures, but God has called me this, to this community and I will lay down my life for this community. I will love this community to Christ. It takes courage to be a settler. And while we celebrate pioneers, let me tell you something. At CMN, we celebrate settlers as well. We celebrate the people who've said, this is where God called me. Why is it so important that we have clarity in what God's called us to do? I think of the illustration, it's um, uh, the 04 Olympics in Athens, Greece. And it's the 50 meter three position rifle competition. Matthew Emmons is in first place. He's the gold medalist after nine rounds. In fact, his average score is 9.3. He has one remaining shot. He is in lane two. He gathers himself. He, he pauses, obviously is breathing and he pulls the trigger and he's waiting for the telltale sign of hitting a bullseye. By the way, he didn't even have to hit a bullseye. He just needed to get one of the, one of the rings in order to, secure the gold. And instead of the telltale sign of a bullseye being hit, there was a, a beep of a fault. Because while he was in lane two, he hit the bullseye in lane three. Why do we have to hit the bullseye with what God's called us to do? Because if you succeed at the wrong thing, you failed. So often we want to be or do or see ourselves as if I could just have their experience, if I could be in their city or if I had their team or their money or you don't. And you never will because God's not writing your story through them. He's writing your story through you. It's a little bit like the pilot that comes over the intercom. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Uh, Want to let you know we're making record time. The bad news is we're lost. It's, there's no value in getting somewhere fast if you're going the wrong direction. What are the benefits of being in a settlement? There's a bunch. First of all, there's strength in numbers. There is a backup and covering and a foundation of people. It's a place of healing and recovery. It's a, it's a place where you can sleep in peace knowing you're not going to be attacked because you can close the gate. It's the why behind the what of missions giving of kingdom builders because it allows for the cumulative effects of prayers and service and generosity to be harnessed to, to resource and bless 
other people. It's local and global. Putting down roots establishes an infrastructure and a framework from which other people and ministries and pioneers can be launched. I think of one of the couples when we launched New Hope Church. And we launched with this audacious vision of five and five to plant five churches in five years. We didn't know how we were going to do it. But to God be the glory, he helped us to accomplish that. I remember the first time I met Leo and Rhonda. And if I was to line up 100 people on this stage and you were to pick out who you thought would be the most generous couple in the ministry, they would be near the bottom quarter of who you might pick. There was just nothing that made them pop. But they're the front row of leadership at New Hope. I got a phone call on a Friday afternoon, about 3 p.m., and it was Rhonda. Rhonda called because Leo had died. 55 years old, he's in their bedroom. She'd called 911 and then she called me. And I drove to their house. I beat the police there. I beat the, I beat the medical examiner. The EMT pulled in right before me. Six months later, my wife and I were invited to lunch. And, and there's a building here, a, a fire lane, and a building here. And in this building was, this strip mall was an Indian restaurant. And she said, I'd like to take you to the Indian restaurant for lunch after church. And my wife had been investing in her. Our sons had been investing and walking with their kids in the midst of their loss, both before and after, of course. And so it wasn't unusual for us to go to lunch. I thought nothing of it. I said, yeah, that sounds good. I'll get some Indian and go home and take a nap and go back to our next campus. And, and um, Rhonda, as we sat down, starts to cry. This wasn't unusual. She was emotional. She was navigating the loss. But she said, you know, Jeffrey, I've been hearing you talk about the vision for the next chapter that we think God's going to write here at New Hope. And we know it's going to cost something. I know we've raised X amount of dollars. But I know, I know Leo believed in what we're doing. And so I want to give you this. And I'll be honest with you in this moment, Pastor Mark, I assumed and I was fired up. I thought it was a check for 10 grand. And I was like, in my mind, I'm like, what a blessing. By the way, the Lord taught me that when I was beginning to prepare to launch New Hope because I had this incredible, I could never have earned it, but I had this opportunity to be at different churches around our network. And I was at one church I'd spoken at many, many times and I knew a very successful, wealthy businessman in the church and he'd been generous for other things. One Sunday I was preaching and he said, uh, God told me when you were speaking to give you all of the money out of my wallet. And I'm like, yeah. Yes. Woo, God, you're so good. And he gave me $6. <laughs> and while I was, I was complaining for a second, you ever throw a pity party and only invite yourself to it? Yeah, I was the one, a single participant in this pity party. And the Lord said, if you don't appreciate the little things, you'll never appreciate the other things. I was like, all right, I received that. And now I'm across the table from Rhonda Dines. And she, it was like a TV show. She slides me this little check. And I'm like, oh, and I'm trying to think, am I going to get tandoori chicken? What kind of naan am I going to have? I wasn't thinking about this moment. And I opened it up, and it was a $100,000 check. 
Now, here's the beautiful part of the story. The building we're in, the fire lane, the building behind here was where we were launching our physical campus. And we ended up buying that strip mall in the entire block, including a restaurant, and then a development center. And that $100,000 just took us over that little, that little bump. Some of you are doing that with the camp. And I think this is the overflow of a settler who's plugged into the church, who says, this is my church. These are my people. I've heard your heart. Pastor, I'm with you. But more than you, I'm with Jesus on this mission. Listen, six bucks matters. So does 100K. But both of them have value, and it's the overflow of having settlers invest in you. Now, that's the good news. What's the peril of being a settler? You start to make a little money. You get a little comfortable. Some of the passion that once marked you, it begins to ebb. And there's a tension we face when we're with pioneers because they kind of bother us. They seem a little edgy. Like, just settle down. What are you all hot and bothered about? And what I believe begins to happen is if we're not careful both as a pioneer or a settler, we begin to lose sight of the original mission which is to make disciples of all nations. But there's also perils to being a pioneer. Let me give you a few. You get shot at and get wounded, but you don't die. And you start to think you're invincible. You start to see people show up and a whole bunch of people saying yes to Jesus and and, and these miracles of generosity and sacrifice. And you start start to think if you're not careful, I kind (laughs) of, I'm pretty good. And humility that once marked you begins to drift. You, you become too mature for mentors if you're not careful. You stop showing up at stuff that you don't teach at. I don't really need to be there because I'm, you know, I'm not doing anything. And you forget that that spirit of humility is what God honors. You know, I know all this because I lived it. And I'm so grateful for the kindness of God. Isn't it cool His kindness leads us to repentance? He's so gentle with us. He brings mentors. And, and for me, my wife, just to bring a little bit of, hey, let's come back to this. Here's the other thing that happens in a pioneer that I think is really scary. Pioneering produces new patterns. And I wrote it down because I think that's significant. It produces new patterns in your life that makes it hard for you to empathize with people who don't do hard things or that you don't think do hard things. Settlers can bother you in ways that you never imagined. Their seeming lack of commitment to the cause can tick you off and make it really difficult not to see them through a negative lens. That's a potential pitfall of a pioneer. But I want you to get a front row seat, a glimpse of what pioneering and settlers can be at their best. This is a story, as I'm about to close, of three pastors and their partnership. Watch this. Back in 2009, my wife and I got a clear vision from God to plant um, our church. And we knew the exact place. It was going to be at a movie theater, at a mall. Uh, The only problem was I had no clue about church planning uh, at all. God told me, don't rush this thing, um, that I needed to have a time and a season to learn, to grow. Uh, And it was really clear and it it excited me. And and what God told me was, 
uh, reach out to Pastor Stan Grant. He's going to help you. But then the reality set in, which was I didn't know Pastor Stan and he didn't know me. Monday morning, I sent him a, a quick email and it just said, Pastor Stan, I feel called to plant a church and I would just love to pick your brain, ask some questions about it. He emailed me back within an hour and said, let's meet tomorrow for lunch. I just kind of felt an excitement, knew God was maybe doing something. We'd always wanted to be a multiplying church. So we'd been praying for years that, that God would connect us to be church planners. We wanted to multiply and expand the kingdom. So we got together and our visions connected Really felt like this was something Clover Hill was supposed to be a part of. I think it was a huge step of faith on his part. He just said, well, would you consider uh, coming to Clover Hill uh, maybe for a season? He said, I've been praying about helping someone plant a church for over five years. And sure enough, uh, my wife and I left our youth pastor job, became interns at Clover Hill for a year. He just let me sit in his staff meetings. He paid for me to go to different conferences. And it, it was just a great year for me to learn about this whole church planting world. When Brian came on, I gave him several opportunities to preach, but he was an excellent communicator, an excellent gatherer. And it was somewhat scary to give him such access to the people. And there was a fear that more than I could afford would go with him. It took us five years to get even to 100 people. But when Brian came on, he was talking about having over 350 on launch day. Sure enough, he went out there and excelled. There's nothing more rewarding than seeing young people that you've invested in excel above anything you could ever imagine. Pastor Stan introduced me to CMN and uh, paid for me and my wife to go to the launch training. So we would have never had the, the launch, the strong launch that we had uh, if it wasn't for the training and the support. They're not just all about helping churches launch. They, they say, I wanna stick with you, have a relationship with you. And this whole experience would have never happened uh, without guys like Pastor Stan and the CMN Network. It kind of created a church planning culture. We don't wanna be hoarders and just build Clover Hill but we really want to raise up leaders to impact and build the kingdom. I first started attending Clover Hill Church as a student, and as teenagers, we knew that God was calling us to plant a church one day. And I so specifically remember, I was out to lunch with Pastor Stan. I just tossed this dream of planting a church to him. I didn't know where, and I didn't know when. He just turned and he looked at me and he said, we want to be a part of sending you. As pastors, one of our roles is to either be a partner or a planner. We should be involved in kingdom expansion. We wanted to set him up for success. We wanted to do all we could to make sure that he had the tools and the resources to make it over the long haul. I'm so grateful that we had a spiritual father. We had a pastor that believed in sending and believed in multiplying. Now here we are six months into our church plant. They launched us out and helped us plant a brand new, life-giving, thriving local church. Our hope is that when Pastor Stan sent us out as Oasis Church, that he didn't just send out Oasis Church, but that it's a domino effect. He didn't just send out one church, but he sent out another church that's gonna send out another church that's gonna send out another church. There's more people that need to experience Jesus. There's more people that need to be baptized. There's more families that need to be restored. If we will keep that the main thing, just one more for Jesus, we'll touch this world and reach this generation. Our mandate as a church is to, is to go after one more leader, to go after one more neighborhood, to go after one more family, one more campus. Let's help one more planner. Let's give one more dollar. Let's do it one more time.
that, that video is less about Brian and Nate than it is about Stan. Because Brian and Nate don't happen without Stan. The power of a settler. You already said it took us five years to get to 100. That's relative. If you're in a small town, it could take you five years to get to, to 30. It's what it, the number doesn't matter. The health matters. But Stan is a settler that understands his capacity to love his people and then also to help other people step into God's plan for their lives. So let me talk to the stands in this room. Who are you partnering with? How are you leveraging the beautiful story God's writing through your church and your community to help other people? You know, it's interesting when you're part of a, a church plant. By the way, church plants see three times more salvations than a traditional church. That's not indicting the, the traditional church. There's something about the momentum, the engagement, new people, new volunteers, new energy, friends that don't know Jesus. You move into a community. There's just this wave of new life that comes from a, a new church. But what's beautiful is a, a, a settler church that helps another church plant restarts their evangelism clock. It takes you from arrows in to arrows out in such a, now, a settler church doesn't always have to be arrows in, but what it does is when you invest in someone else who's doing something outside of your walls, it resets the clock. It tells your people, it's not just about what's happening here. So to the stands in the room, I just want to say thank you. And to the Bryans and the Nates, I want to say thank you. You are part of, in Minnesota, one of the healthiest districts in the nation. And that's because of leadership, but it's because of you. And I want to say, continue to step forward into what God's called you to. On January 18th, 1803, a, a private letter was sent from Thomas Jefferson, President Thomas Jefferson, to Congress requesting $2,500 to begin a brand new organization in their administration called the Corps of Discovery. This is where were first introduced to the dynamic duo, Lewis and Clark. And their job was to find the, the fastest, in fact, I'll, I'll read it for you, find the most direct and predictable water communication across the continent for the purpose of what? Commerce. And they weren't the first nation. In fact, over 300 years, at least four other sovereign nations had to, tried to find a, access from the Mississippi to the Pacific Ocean so they could have access to the new world. So they begin their quest. And 15 months into their journey, they got to the headway of the uh, Missouri River. And they were brought to there because of um, an Indian tribe that gave them secret access or you know, un unusual access to this passageway that brought them to the headway. Here's what they assumed when they got to the headway, the, the starting point of the Missouri. They assumed that they would get to the top of the pass, look over, and then two or three uh, days to get all their canoes and all their supplies, and then they would gently glide down into the Pacific. <laughs> it, it, don't worry, it wasn't them being arrogant. They had no idea what they didn't know. They had never been there before. And what's interesting is, I think many of us feel this way coming out of COVID. And COVID is just a thing. The gospel is not hindered by anything. But we felt the tensions of, I thought it would be a little different. I thought I might get to the end of COVID and things might just kind of, maybe not 
gently float into the, the Pacific. But there's some questions. I thought it would look different. And it, what's interesting is, in order for them to accomplish their mission, they had to have people who knew things they didn't know, who had been to places they'd never been. And that's that power of partnership. Now, after 15 months, an incredibly arduous journey, they discovered that what was ahead of them was actually going to be harder than what was behind them. They were assuming that the, the, the mountains, which is what they told were in front of them, would be like the tree-capped Appalachian Mountains, because that's literally all they knew. And what they discovered was the Rocky Mountains. And they went at this point, what they say, uh, and I'm quoting from Lewis and Clark's expedition, they said all they could see was the Rocky Mountains as far as the eye could see, and they were, they were the most terrible mountains they had ever beheld. Some of y'all, honestly, from your vantage point, you look up and right now you see a mountain. The, the problem for them was they knew how to canoe, but they would have to learn how to climb. And in order to accomplish this new approach to the same mission, they need to have some people in their life that could help them do that. Old Toby was one of the people that was provided. And then a Shoshone nursing mother, a teenager by the name of Sacagawea, was really their saving grace. So let me throw this out. The experts became the novices and had to apprentice with a teenage girl. People who had been in the presence of presidents were now looking to a teenager for direction to not freeze to death during the winter. There was a teachability that marked their group from this point forward. There was a dependence. And what they ended up doing was finding the passageway eventually to the Pacific, the Lewis and Clark Trail. Now, when I was reading that story, it, it reminded me of uh, instructions from people you wouldn't necessarily look to. And I'll finish with this. My junior year of high school, we lived in, in Paulsville, Washington, outside of Seattle. And we were going to a summer camp. We'd already gone to the district summer camp. And I got invited to a Youth for Christ camp that was in California. So I'm like, yeah, wasn't I had a week off of work. I'll go, I'll go do it. So on our way down from Seattle to, to California, we, you know, cross through the um, southern part of Washington. You get into Oregon. You're making way down to California. On the way through Oregon, we came to the Rogue River. And our director, Chris Clark, had set up a river rafting expedition for our group of 75 teenagers. How many of you have ever been river rafting? How many of you ever thought you were going to die river rafting? I am in both of those categories. On this particular day, the Rogue River is a class three at points, which means dangerous if you don't know what you're doing, but not a lot of fatalities. So we were in uh, multiple rafts. We were in the third raft back, and it was all my big, you know, high school football buddies and a couple of, you know, these little junior high girls. And I remember we were all positioned at different points on this raft. And in the back was a college student that weighed about 107 pounds, soaking wet with a life jacket on, and they were giving instructions to our group. And I'll be honest with you, some of our older high school boys had trouble getting directions. Shocking, I know. Uh, but then we watched the raft that was two in front of us approach the turn in, in the river. There's a bend in the river where whenever there's a bend, the water speeds up, and anything that doesn't make it to the left gets ground against this wall. Well, the first raft listened to the instructions of um, their guide, and they, they made it to the left before they got pulled in by that current. 
The raft in front of us did it. And we watched almost in slow motion where they're paddling for all their might at the last minute too late and they run up against the wall, grind and they tip over. Now, fortunately, no one drowned. But can I tell you, it got our attention. And now our guide said, listen, in a moment, I'm gonna say one phrase. And when I say this phrase, I need everyone to do it. Don't, not yet. And then they shout, everybody paddle. What's interesting is some of the big, big dudes were on the right side of the boat and some of the little, little kids were on the left side. And I'm telling you right now, every one of the people's paddle mattered. If you only have one side paddling, what do you do? Drowned is the answer. (laughs) Everybody paddle! And what's interesting, the people who thought they were strongest and had the greatest capacity were dependent on the people who weren't. Why? It's the power of partnership. It's a reminder, your part, listen, your part, not the person next to you, your part on this adventure that we're on called Christianity and loving communities for the gospel, your part matters. And I'm here to tell you today in this second session, everybody paddle. What does it look like for you to paddle? Are you going to be a a pioneer or a settler? And some of you might be a little of a hybrid. You're establishing a church. We have a a burden for multiplication. Listen, not everyone's going to plant churches, but everyone can help people plant churches. Why? Because everyone's paddling matters. And there's something you're a part of. It's so beautiful to talk about this here because you have process, you have framework, you have systems, you have general. It's just a beautiful place to be a part of the mission of God. But I want to pray for you as I close. And I want to ask you one question. Is your paddle in the water? Because it would be really easy for that junior high girl, and I wish I knew her name, it escapes me. It would be very easy for her to say, I'm not going to make a difference. But you know what the guide says? Everybody paddle. What does it look like for you even this weekend to either again or recommit to being a part of this? Is your paddle in the water? And let me ask this. If you're back here and you're, you're one of the bigger paddlers, do you recognize the power of that partnership? Everybody paddle.